Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. Hi, how are you? Hope you're having a great day. I'm having a great day, and I'm aware that I'm having a great day. I'm aware of my mindfulness of having a great day. I'm conscious of my awareness of my mindfulness that I'm having a great day. Do you think we overdo that sometimes? Do you, do you think sometimes instead of reminding ourselves to be mindful, we should just be in the moment and not think too much about what we're doing? Have you ever been in a restaurant where you're like, this is me eating a sandwich. This is this is me noticing me eating a sandwich in an incomprehensibly large universe and a fleeting moment in time as a mortal eating a sandwich. Just eat the sandwich, man. Have you ever been like, have you ever tried too hard to connect with, for example, a waiter, you know, and you're like, I just want you to be seen. I just want you to be acknowledged. And the waiter looks at you like, dude, look, just look, I'm fine. I'm good. You don't have to worry about me. I'm just doing my job. Appreciate the effort, but I'm okay. Look, I've waited tables. I've bust tables. I've been there. Sometimes people just want to do their job. It's not your job. And it's a little condescending to be like, I just want you to be seen as if you're more important than that waiter. I don't know, man. I don't know. Sometimes we go too far. I posted on Instagram this week what I think is funny, a funny little clip about all the inspirational posts that people put on social media. And it's like, maybe we're just going a little too far. Maybe, you know, maybe we don't need to think about Amelia Earhart's inspirational quotes. Maybe, maybe she did her thing and that's fine. Maybe we don't need to memorialize her in a fucking meme. Okay. Hey, did I mention my guest? No, I haven't even mentioned Justin Richmond. Justin is a very cool dude who hosts a podcast called Started from the Bottom on Pushkin, which is Malcolm Gladwell's uh, podcast production company. And Started from the Bottom tells the stories of very successful, both personally and professionally successful people who come from non-traditional backgrounds, economically, racially, immigrationally, educationally, people who beat the odds and became successful through hard work, determination, and believing in themselves and having other people believe in them as well. And he tells these stories. And I love this because he tells these stories at a time where a lot of people are out there saying, the world is against you. You can't do it. But these people show that it can be done. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean there's a clear path, but it can be done. And hard work pays off. Justin Richmond's hard work has paid off. He too comes from a non-traditional background. He didn't even graduate from high school, but he found himself, he earned his own way into UC Berkeley and eventually got a master's in journalism there as well before networking himself into jobs at the Tavis Smiley Show and then at NPR where he was a producer for Morning Edition and became an arts reporter and then got a little call from the bullpen to go join Pushkin where he also produces where in addition to Started from the Bottom, he's the co-host and producer of the show Broken Record with Malcolm and Def Jam co-founder Rick Rubin. So how cool is this guy's gig? I mean, he was working with the greatest people on the planet. He's telling great stories, stories that are worth telling, and he's doing it on a pretty powerful platform over there at Pushkin. That was a lot of peas. Alliteration means a lot to us here on Crazy Money, as you know. Hey, a couple of business things real quick. I'm shaking up my Instagram and my Facebook presences, so check me out at Paul underscore Ollinger on Instagram, and be aware that there are some changes on Facebook. If you happen to get blocked by me, it was not intentional. I apologize. Reach back out. Also, really importantly, guys, I'm headlining my first full weekend headlining comedy club at Chattanooga's Comedy Catch, June 23rd and 24th, really hoping to fill that room. 
So tell all your friends who live in Chattanooga to get themselves out to the Comedy Catch June 23rd and 24th. Similarly, co-headlining the Charlotte Comedy Zone July 23rd with my friend, Chicago-based comedian, Paul Tharavar. Tharavar. July 23rd at the Comedy Zone in Charlotte. Don't miss it. Be there. All right, folks. Thanks so much for your support. As always, here's my conversation with Justin Richmond. What were you like as a kid? What was I like as a kid? You know, it's it's so funny, man, because I guess I can only give, I can give two versions of it, which one, my perspective of how I was as a kid, and then kind of how I hear I was as a kid from, <laughs> from my family. Yeah. And in some ways they both do, there is some, uh, they do complement each other. I think I was um, just, I was a happy, you know, I was once a happy kid and also a pretty in my head kid, you know? Mm. It's funny, at a certain point, I realized that most of my life I probably had some level of generalized anxiety. I didn't figure that out until I started having like panic attacks. Those an adult, and then I realized, yeah. oh, like I have anxiety. And then, I, and then as I thought back about <laughs> this, has what, been with me the whole time. Yeah, the whole time, man. You know, but uh, so yeah, I, I would say I oscillated between like uh, being a really outgoing, happy-go-lucky kid to sort of being very in my head and very aware of of myself. I was very self-conscious, also. Your dad is black, and your mom is white. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So did your biracialness play into that anxiety? Did you feel different? Did you feel other? I don't think my biracialness played into it, but I think definitely in school, my being black played into it. But in terms of like the biracial thing, like I never felt that at home. Like I never felt, I never felt other amongst any side of my, any member of my family. And and my, my families are very contrasting as well. Like my, my mom grew up on the racetrack and is very much like, you know, into horses and Oh no kidding. That's her, that's her bag. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up, you know, I grew up to some extent, like I grew up around horses, but then also, you know, my dad's from Compton. And so like I had this very, I guess, <laughs> you know, it was like both country and urban, <laughs> you know. Right. But I never felt in in either of my families as being too too other. But yeah, but I would say it's at, you know, various times in school that would come up. Yeah, you know. So I've listened to several episodes of the podcast, and we're going to obviously talk about that at great length. Yeah. But I also listened to the interview you did with Malcolm Gladwell before the podcast, and you told a a really interesting and kind of like a heartbreaking story about what happened to you when you went to a, a new school as a kid. Yeah, that was actually my, that was my first day of school. We had moved to my first day of kindergarten. My mom moved to the city of orange in, uh, in orange County, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's close to LA, but it's, it culturally feels about as different as you can get was lost on me at the time. I showed up to kindergarten first day what is this? It was 1994, you know? So I was feeling, I had my Power Rangers shirt, Power Rangers <laughs> lunchbox. I was nervous, but ready to go. You yeah, know, again, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've always a sort of part happy-go-lucky, ready to go, ready to dive in, part in my head, very nervous. What's gonna? What's this going to be, you know? I remember standing in line. There's even a picture of me lined up out front, in front of the gate. And uh, I remember feeling, yeah, nervous, but happy. And this this kid in front, of me directly in front of me turns around had not interacted with him at at all by this point turns around and says you know like 
and asked me, are you poor? And, and I, remember, I remember just being, you know, I, the, my conception of poor, I, you know, I, I didn't even know if I knew what that meant, but I kind of knew what it meant. And it, it just left, it, I was so confused. I remember thinking like, I remember saying like, like what do you mean? Like, what do you mean yeah. am I poor? He goes, oh, you look poor. And, and it, again, I don't even know if I had a full understanding of what that meant, but I remember it, it definitely crushed me. And what then, a gut um, punch, man. Yeah, gut punch for sure. And I remember discussing it with my mom or telling my mom after school. My mom had the conversation with me about, well, you know, this is what it is to be black, essentially. You know, I, to that point, I don't think I realized I was black. And it was interesting because my mom was white. So she had insight into some of the stuff that I think. So I got the your black talk from my white mom, which was interesting because she had insight that was different. Uh, including, I remember her telling me, I've been around, people think I'm like, the, uh, you know, when I'm around other white people, they think I'm like them. And I hear them say, like, outrageously racist things. And it's terrible. And, you know, so I think her appeal to me was that this kid is probably hearing things at home, you know. And, right. And that, but this is that you're going to be sort of dealing with this as you move through life. And you're going to be dealing with people who have biases that you're not even aware of because they don't outwardly display them. Right. So, yeah. And do you think it was your race that made him ask that question? There was no other, nothing else that you were signifying that gave off. I mean, you had a fresh new Power Rangers shirt. I don't think I was signifying anything. And, you know, I don't know. Certainly could have been something else. Could have been something else in him. But that was the answer given to me by my mom. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. That's the answer I've always rode with, I guess, you know. I heard that story. I was just like, shit, man. <laughs> like, God yeah. damn, that is not a good way to start school. <laughs> no. And it it kind of like set up, I think it sort of set up sort of a harbinger of things to come. Like my, it was just a rough and rocky road <laughs> yeah. public school, you know, until, until college. What kind of student were you in school? Early on, um, I think if you asked about any teacher of mine until fifth grade, maybe fourth grade. I was quiet. I was smart, but didn't quite work to my potential because I was also, while I was quiet, I was also a bit of, um, I didn't really like following rules. You know, I always had a bit of a rebellious streak in me. So, you know, I'm realizing as I'm talking to you, like I I really am this sort of mix of of contradictions because I'm outgoing, but I'm also self-conscious. And I was, I was sort of, Quiet and respectful for the longest time in school, but also rebellious, you know, in, in a lot of ways. How did you rebel? You know, just different things. Like I remember, I, you know, I, <laughs> I would just regular boy stuff. I get in fights. I would. Uh, I remember in fifth grade, this is actually gets to the point of my contradiction. I remember in fifth grade, I had one of the, the great teachers I ever had pre-college was this Canadian guy, Mr. Zydema. He was like a fantastic teacher, man. But I, we just put him through the ringer. And I remember one day, I forget what happened, but there was something I was upset about. And I staged a protest in the class. And I had everyone <laughs> line up around the outside, like the, you know, line up against the wall, like seated, like uh, around the wall and, and refusing to do anything that he said, like, you know, until basically I got what I wanted. I wish I could remember what that was. It was something related to a field trip. So maybe it was, I was separated <laughs> from my friend in this group of the field. Anyway, so we were lined up and I remember in my mind, it was the, in, like hours that I had organized this class to rebel against him. 
to the point where he he broke down into tears. I remember him crying oh, in the class because no. he just lost complete control. And and I remember at the end of the day, I felt so terrible. I wrote him a note apologizing, and I left it on his desk. <laughs> and then I got a note back from him the next day saying, you know, hey, that was pretty pretty brutal, but thanks for thanks for the apology. And you know, I've stayed actually I've stayed in touch with him to this day. Um, we, we we text occasionally. Oh, that's cool. He's a good dude. That yeah, that was kind of. Uh, so, yeah, it was weird. Like, you know, I, I had this rebellious thing where I was like, I was going to lead this class protest. But I also, by the end of it, felt bad enough that I wrote him a letter sort of saying, hey, man, yeah. you know, I just put you through the ringer. I, my, my apologies. How did you connect with music as a kid? You know, I've realized it was through my grandmother. Um, she loves music. She particularly loves great singers. She came from Detroit. She's white from Detroit, um, but grew up like like city, city Detroit, like poor, like just Detroit, Detroit. And the more I've learned about this, that city, I realize it makes sense. I mean, she just has loved great singers, whether it was um, Smokey Robinson and the Temptations or Johnny Mathis, or she didn't even like Frank Sinatra, but I remember she made me do take, she made me uh, join a swim team because she said that Frank Sinatra used to swim to improve his lung capacity. So I don't know if she wanted me to be a singer. I should actually ask her about that, but she'd always talk to me about singers, you know? I remember my lesson about not smoking was don't smoke. Nat King Cole used to smoke because he thought it made his voice sound better. It would be raspy. You know, he thought it gave him this rasp and this this thing, this well-marbled voice, but it killed him. So don't smoke, (laughs) you know? You've got a great voice. Can you sing? Can you carry a tune? You know, um, I've gotten better at singing over the years, but I would say uh, one of the great mysteries of my life, because I've, I've been told I have a great speaking voice, is why that speaking voice doesn't translate to, a, to much of a singing voice. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not great. And maybe that's because I started smoking and I, I stopped swimming But uh, <laughs> at a certain point. <laughs> but yeah, and, and my grandma took me to a concert, my first concert. It was uh, All for One, which was kind of like a boys to men knockoff yeah. so yeah my, my my grandma really put me onto music I, I feel like yeah and how did you how did that interest evolve you know at a certain point that stuff was just what i thought music was like oldies i didn't know that oldies were really oldies like i just thought that was the music of like i didn't know that it was like oh this is old music um yeah. if that was current but then as i got older and into like middle school i started picking up on punk rock like the ramones um, and the Clash and the Sex Pistols, and I started getting into like hip hop, like in a real way. Like I was into hip hop as a. I remember in fifth grade, I, trying to go see a Method Man or Red Man show, and my, my mom not letting yeah. me go. But I, but 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 probably yeah, a good parental decision. I, I'm to this day I'm mad, but uh, I also I understand it. <laughs> right. I think about that all that right. I wish I'd gone, but I 100 percent understand. But yeah, then I sort of really get into hip hop, middle school, high school, punk rock middle school high school then halfway through high school i got really into jazz because i started playing guitar in middle school and then by the by mid high school i was like damn like there's this whole other level of guitar playing that's jazz and i got into jazz yeah. in a real way and my love of music just evolved from like playing guitar from like the great singers that my grandma introduced me to to through my guitar playing just discovering different you know like the ramones were great because it was like three power chords and it's like that was like really easy for me to learn but then it was like oh yep. i love jazz and then all the samples and hip-hop like i would go and look back and discover those like like you know it, it was it was uh it was just fun you know i got obsessed with learning everything i could about music yeah you know when i was a kid i always assumed or when i was a young adult just after college i always thought like my career was going to be just one straight line up and to the right you know 
And as you listen to the stories that you tell on the podcast, and again, we'll get to it in a second, what you realize is that there's no straight line to success, right? I mean, there's, yeah. there's more traditional paths than others, but pretty much everybody who gets there finds it on their own way. Your path was sort of not one of continuity all the way. Yeah. Tell me about Berkeley and, and your journey there and your journey from there. Yeah, man, it was wild. Like, you know, like growing up, I didn't, I I just, college felt so, you know, my mom would tell me you're going to go to college, you know, Mm. and. uh, Did your parents go to college? My mom dropped out of UCI when she got pregnant with me. My Mm -hmm. my dad went to Cal State Fullerton for football and didn't graduate. And, you know, no one else that I knew of in my family went. And so it just wasn't like no one quite knew what that was. So it was like, yeah, you're going to go. But then again, you know, like by the time I get to high school, my GPA, my freshman year of high school was like zero point something. <laughs> like, I mean, legitimately, it was zero point Mr. something. Mr. So, I Blutarski. Mean, oh, my God. You know, what is that? Blutarski? <laughs> That's uh, what's Belushi's character in Animal House who had a zero point zero. <laughs> oh, my God. I was, I, I mean, look, man, <laughs> at 14, I kind of was. Whatever Jim Belushi was up to, I was up to as well at 14. Yeah. I was kind of running yeah. amok. Yeah, so it was, it was pretty brutal. I remember they were going to – my school was basically like, like you you can't come back here. You know, like uh, this, is, <laughs> this isn't working. So they were going to send me to uh, – God, there's some funny things too. So I remember my fr- – <laughs> I remember my, fr- my first day at uh, – my first day of my, my freshman year of high school showing up to like my third period, second period, and like sitting down – and literally the things we were learning was like CH is ch, SH is sh. And I'm being like, what the fuck is this? What's going on? And uh, I was like, they had me in the uh, ESL courses, like English is the second language right, courses. Right, right. What is going on? I got out of that. I don't know. My whole, the whole experience was just, it was, it was bizarre. But yeah, they're, they're like, look, you, you can't come back here. Like this is, this is, you basically have flunked your first year. We're going to send you to continuation school. My mom kind of knew what that was. That was basically going to just put me on the road to ruin for real because that's where all the, the cups go. You know, she was like, you're not a fuck up, so you're not, you're not going there. But, you know, as it goes, I was 14, just kind of feeling myself, going on 15 at that point. Single mom kind of just did what at that. So at that point, I kind of did what I did. I just dropped out, to be honest. Um, she had intended for me to start this homeschooling program. Yeah. It just didn't, didn't, didn't happen, didn't do it. And, uh, yeah, I was just running around at 14, 15, going wild. And then somewhere in that, in that period of time, a friend of mine gave, a friend of mine's cousin gave me the autobiography of Malcolm X and was like, you should read this. And, uh, I was interested, you know, I started reading it and it piqued my interest because, you know, most of my teachers expected me to be a failure in life, you know, like in, Within my family, Mm -hmm. I think my family thought I was talented, but they didn't know quite how, what what, what did that mean? Okay, clearly Justin has some gifts and some talents, but how does that translate to anything? They couldn't explain to me how that could translate to a career in any definitive way. So, you know, I always felt a little wayward in terms of what could I do with my life. And then I read Malcolm X and I completely identified because similarly, you know, clearly one of the most gifted people ever and everyone at every turn just discounted him and his his abilities to the point where he was similar to me at the time, running amok. He wound up in jail, and that's when his life made a turn for the better. And I kind of realized I don't want to end up in jail, you know? I, I don't want to end up in jail, and 
I had right. friends who were, you know, I had friends who ultimately are are now not with us. They're dead. And so yeah. I kind of realized that was the the path I was on. And I just ultimately I wanted for some reason to this day, I don't know what came over me, but I had the feeling that I wanted to reward the sacrifice my parents made for me, specifically my mother and my grandmother um, made a lot of sacrifices for me, put them through mm-hmm. hell. <laughs> and I realized like, I didn't want that necessary. I didn't want that to be for, for, for nothing. So um, I was like, you know, I got to figure this out. I just knew high school wasn't going to work. So I was like, I'm not going back to that. I'm not doing continuation school. I don't want to start all over again. Now I'm like three quarters of the way through what should have been my sophomore year. So I was like, I, I, you know, I, I can't do four years from here just to figure things out. So uh, I realized I could enroll in community college. So I just I did that, enrolled in community college, took two courses, failed one course, got an A plus in the other course. <laughs> With the difference, realized okay, well, <laughs> the A plus was enough. I, oh, that's funny. I got what, the A plus. Where'd you get it was the A plus? A course from uh, it was eighteen sixty five to present. History eighteen sixty five to present with Mrs. Booth. Uh huh. And uh, and I failed my. It was a poly. No, 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 no. Interpersonal communication. I, I think I got like a D in that course. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I ended up taking that again right. to, to, to expunge the D. Uh, but the A was a, the A plus was enough that I realized like, oh damn, like I can I can I can do this. Like I'm good enough to hang here. Right. And so that gave me enough confidence to just keep going. The next time I took, then I took a, a poli sci course over the summer, and then I loaded up on all my units. Like the next, and it just started rolling. And, and I, you know, it was like five years of that until when I was 20, I started applying for schools. I remember filling out the application and being like, well, you know, UCI is close to my mom's house. I could do that. UCLA is close to like a bunch of people. I know that like friends, family, whatever. I could swing that. So that felt, I didn't think I was going to get in, but I was like, I'm going to apply to those two. Plus I applied to all the Cal States. I was like, I'm going to apply to those two Mm -hmm. UCs because if on any chance I get in, I can make that work. And then I remember the last minute being like, you know what? I'm going to check the Berkeley box too. Like, what's the worst that could happen? I think I had to do a separate application for it, but I was like, what's the worst that could happen? And somehow I, 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 you know, I remember I got into UCI, didn't get into UCLA, appealed the decision. They still said no. And I was like, okay, UCI it is. Then I remember I got an email for deferred admission to Berkeley, which was basically instead of me starting fall semester, I'd start the spring semester. And I was 21 at this point, And I was like, great. You know, this is like unbelievable unbelievable you know golden ticket and i remember going yeah. up to the uh the counselor who, who admitted me like before long before even that fall semester that i, I was gonna have to sit out started and just sort of running with it like look i don't have a i don't have a high school diploma like i just want to make sure like this is based on like am i re- am i able <laughs> are you sure i can attend like i'm a high school dropout you know i got this aa certificate right. but is that cool yeah. with you and i remember her looking at me and be like yeah yeah, it's fine. You're admitted. Do you, you you have your AA, right? Yes. You took all these units that you said you took at community college? Yes. You know, welcome to Berkeley. And I just, it just blew my mind. Yeah. Right so on. so that was incredible. You know, just just can't say enough like how I don't go I don't think back to those times often, but you know, when I think back, it was like it was pretty improbable at the time. So it was a a life-changing moment for sure. How do you get from Berkeley to where you are today? I, I like to say I fell into what I do today, man. By the time I got to Berkeley, I'd been hanging around some friends that I met through community college who were PhDs, and I was like, you know, I want to, I want to teach. 
But while I was there, I realized I met a professor who was writing books. And I was like, you know, maybe like, maybe this is what I want to do. Maybe I want to do journalism. And I took it. They didn't have an undergrad journalism course, but my last semester, they they had one that you could take at the graduate school. It was open to only 20 undergrad students. Applied for it, got it, took it. My final piece that I wrote for them got picked up by the East Bay Express. I graduate, apply for jobs, can't find anything. I was applying for anything. I was like, I should probably apply to be a banker, right? Like, that's what people do. Like, I was just like, <laughs> I fired off. Like, <laughs> I had right, no right, idea yeah. what I was applying for. I was applying for everything. Down to, like, the front desk at a yoga studio yeah. uh, um, or, at, or, at a, or at a chiropractic place. And I wasn't getting anything. It's either Goldman Sachs or reception. By the way, the I had studio. as much idea about what any of those did as the other. You know, like I, it was just like, I mean, it was like so stupid <laughs> right, of what I was applying for. Right, right. And in the midst of all those yeah. like, sort of like basically no's, the check from the East Bay Express came in for that piece that got placed. I was like, you know, okay, here's my first little bit of money. I guess this is what I'm going to do now. So I just kept yeah. doing that. Couldn't support myself. So I moved back in with my mom, reached out to, um, Cold reached out to a bunch of producers for TV shows that, that I liked because I thought that would be like a good route. Um, and I ended up hearing back from Tavis Smiley's producer, but not his TV producer, his radio producer. And he was like, yo, I'm down to, I, we could use the help down to have you come in. Keep the faith. Keep the Keep faith, the, right? Keep the faith. That's right. I like Tavis. Apparently there were some things happening in the workplace, but I'll say while I was there, um, he was great to me. I didn't say anything. Um, not to discount anything that you know people said it was a, a a bad work environment. I I learned a lot. He was really important to my development, and so I have to I have to be uh, grateful and thankful that he you know especially to this person Joe Zephron Jay Z who was the producer of Smiley and West's show with Cornell West, and it was like that's where I learned to edit audio. And I was like, man, I could do this. I was like, if I could get paid for doing this, like you know, I do this for I would do this for free. Like this is it. Like I you know I felt like I found it. So. Yeah. Then I applied to grad school, got into grad school, got a job at NPR through a professor I met there. Once I got to NPR, I realized like I was kind of way out of my depth. I realized like I grew up, I was I was into music. And I often feel like if I hadn't dropped out of high school, I would have tried to pursue a professional career in music. But by the time, you know, I started feeling like I need to get my life back on track, I didn't feel like I had the luxury of like messing around with trying to make a music career work. I was like, you know, I was like, I got to get a college degree because if I don't get a college degree, yeah. I got like an eighth grade certificate and like that ain't going to, that ain't going to cut it, you know? So, you know, but I grew up loving music. And then here I was at NPR, like doing political, producing like political conversations and it just wasn't, wasn't my thing. So that's what I started just booking musicians for them there, you know, and doing arts coverage. Yeah. And it sort of started to feel like a good marriage between the skill I had developed, which is journalism and, and audio editing, and also uh, my initial passion, which was music. Yeah. And then and then it all really came together when I got this job through Malcolm Gladwell to, to produce his podcast with Rick Rubin, and the two worlds really collided for me. Yeah. Yeah. How cool is that? I mean, Rick is a legend. Let's talk about your podcast, Starter from the Bottom. What's your goal for the show? My goal is to entice people to take big swings, man. You know, I grew up, I feel like, with two particularly talented parents who didn't quite have the confidence to take the swings in life. You know, I think my dad, after his mm. football career not working out, that kind of crushed him. I think my mom, I, I think a series of life circumstances sort of prevented her from pursuing, um, ultimately, I think what would have been like any number of her passions. 
And that sort of got passed down to me where I was not confident enough much of my life to take a swing. You know, I, I just didn't have that confidence, didn't think I could do it, didn't have it modeled to me. And so through a lot of my teenage years into early adulthood, anytime I would see someone like a black dude around that looked like he had money, a suit, like if we would pull up in a Benz or something, I would just be like, yo, man, like, hey, what do you do? Like, yeah. it was like, I remember sometimes it would be completely turned <laughs> right. out. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Well, who's it? Who are you? Who are you? Like, why, why is this like barista talking to me? Like, you know? Yeah. But, but some people, I met a lifelong friend on a flight home from JFK to Long Beach because it was, again, it was his brother in a suit and he has two kids with him and they seemed like a perfect family. And I just remember asking him, like, yo, what do you do? And he was, he was told me, oh, I'm West Coast. I'm head of West Coast sales for uh, Siemens Communications. Like, wait, what is that? And like, what does that mean? And I just pick mm. his brain for like, what is, I just wanted to understand the world of opportunity out there. And so the idea for the show was kind of born out of that. I realized there's a lot of people of color and a lot of women and just people in general, but who there's a lot of people who don't have role models, proximity to people in their lives who have had the level of success to where they can then envision themselves in those places of success. You see Oprah on TV, yes, but how many among us can endeavor to be Oprah? Like that is, uh, that feels far-fetched, right? Right. I want to be Oprah, man. Muhammad Masakwa, who's a friend now, he's a former football player for the Cleveland Browns and others. He was on the show and he was telling me his parents are immigrants from Liberia. And he said something to me that really stuck with me, which is, None of the parents in my neighborhood were doctors or lawyers or corporate people. Like we didn't even have that to think about. And while I didn't grow up in a rich neighborhood, most of the families were two parent families. All the dads were employed except for a few stints here and there. Right. And so I had the societal expectation was that's, that's what you do. That's how you conduct yourself. How do you think the world would be different if these kids, these younger people who are growing up in tough circumstances really believe that they have the opportunity to participate in the economy and make something of themselves economically and professionally. I think we would have a vastly different world. And one of the most amazing, one of the, one of the interesting things, and it's something I want to look into more is through the conversations I've had for the podcast, I've realized, particularly amongst Gen X and boomers, there used to be a ton of programs, particularly for women and people of color to help diversify companies and workforces. And not only just in terms of often we think about affirmative action as just being like uh, getting people in the door, but the people that I've spoken to, whether it was Ursula Burns at Xerox or Sint Marshall at AT AT&T, they had programs that not only brought them into the company or or even actually Susie Orman at at, uh, Merrill Lynch. Not only did they have programs that brought them into the company because they either wanted women or they wanted people of color in their uh, industry and in their company in particular, but then they had mentorship programs within the company mm-hmm. to help get them up to the level of management. And then ultimately, you know, in the case of, of Sint and Ursula Burns, they become CEO. And in the case of Susie Orman, she becomes, you know, a financial guru, uh, yeah. a personal finance guru. So those programs are really lacking, man. And And I think about what would the young people of today, what would you, what would a young black kid today stand to gain from a program like that? I think it's the world. You know, like I got lucky. You know, I got really mm-hmm. lucky. And I, I don't know why, but I somehow, through a series of happy accidents, got into community college, got into Berkeley, got into NPR, 
got in Malcolm Gladwell's orbit. But that is, it was hard work, but it's pure luck, you know? Yeah. And I would love for there to be more mentorship programs for young people. I've listened to, uh, I think, five or six of your episodes and enjoyed the conversations. Each person is very different, but the one that really moved me was Larry Miller. Will you tell Larry's story? Yeah, and Larry Miller's another one of these people who had a similar program. Larry Miller, man, um, incredible human being. He joined Nike in the early 90s and ultimately joined uh, as head of Jordan brand or became the head of Jordan, uh, Michael Jordan's Jordan brand once he retired from the NBA and is responsible along with Michael Jordan and, and others at the company uh, in sort of growing Jordan brand into like basically a whole other division of Nike. It's a, a whole multi-million billion dollar um, business. But Larry Miller started in West Philadelphia in a gang and uh, as a teenager, killed another teenager, you know, and went to prison and in prison got into some program that allowed him to start taking college courses so that when he got out of prison, he felt he had something behind him, something he could fall back on. Ends up enrolling at university, graduates with a business degree in business. First job interview out at an accounting firm, gets up to the last interview, and he can feel it's going well. He can feel like he's going to get the job. And I think out of a sense of just sort of duty and feeling being the good guy that he is, said, hey, look, before this goes further, sort of, sort of like I did when I went to the counselor at Berkeley and told her, look, look, I know I'm in. but <laughs> it's a little more a, serious, a little more serious diploma. than that. But similar where he, he, he goes to this guy and he, he goes, look, like I've gotten this far. I can tell, like I feel, I know this is going, but before it goes any further, I want to let you know my story. It tells him the story. In a gang, killed a kid in prison, got my degree. Now I'm here. Guy pulls the offer letter out of his jacket pocket, says, I was going to give it to you, but you know what? Um, it's just too risky. Uh, but you know, to be honest, like you're a good guy, I'm sure it's going to work out for you. And at that point he, he, he decides he's never going to tell anyone that again. So he, he harbors that secret for the rest of his, uh, his, his, his career until about five years ago. He's in his seventies now. Yeah. Yeah. That was really, that was an incredible story. And I, I almost cried when he talked about talking to his, the parents of his victims or the family of his victim and, you yeah. know, asking for forgiveness. And it was just like super moving. Yeah. What do you think of all the people you've talked to? They've all started from the bottom. They've come from non-traditional or sort of non-less privileged backgrounds. Everybody has some degree of privilege, whether it's talent or a great voice or mm -hmm. good looks like you. <laughs> what do these people have in common that have helped them get to where they have arrived in their careers? You know, certainly I think there's a level of them – not accepting reality, you know, um, <laughs> I really do. Self-delusion is a powerful tool, man. I think, and that's something I've learned from being around Rick Rubin is that, you know, it's, it's that cliche. If you can't, if you can't dream, you know, what is it? If you can't believe it, you can't achieve it or whatever it is. It's like, like that, you yeah. know, it really is like you have to disregard whatever your reality is and really imagine a whole new reality for yourself. And I think in every instance, everyone that I've talked to, despite the circumstances of their upbringing, despite the people they were surrounded with, despite that there was no roadmap for them, they knew that they belonged somewhere else. Now, along the way, there was a lot of luck, you know? 
And some of that luck was these programs that I'm talking about. For Larry Miller, was that that program that allowed him to, to start taking college courses for free in, in while he was incarcerated. For Ursula Burns, it was finding herself going to college right next to Xerox. And Xerox, right at that time that she was there, having this program where they, they were wanting to bring black leaders into the company. So they bring her in specifically because they want her to become a leader of the company. So they certainly have a lot of grit and a lot of, uh, a lot of dedication to the work, but there's a ton of luck involved. And I think above all else, there was a level of, you're right, delusion, a level of just not accepting their, their, <laughs> their reality. The first episode I listened to in the intro of your show, I kind of, I had a little incident. I was like, and here's what it was in your intro. You described the show as hard earned success stories for people like us. Yeah. And I go, Oh, wait a minute. Am I in that group? Am I us? Am I a part of us? Who's us? Us is anyone. Us is whoever. But whoever, who is it? Whoever feels like they need that story that day. Yeah. That they heard. If Larry Miller moved you, that was a story for you. you yeah. Know? That was us is we all learn from each other. We all learn from each other. So centering the podcast around people of color and around women in general um, is not to exclude anybody else especially from the audience because we all learn from each other you know I, I can't even begin to explain the number of highly influential white men that have been in my life i mean we all have to lean on one another and learn from each other but within the podcast space there is not a ton of stories centered around women and people of color and i felt like those are the, some of the stories i wanted to highlight while i had the opportunity to, to do it Dude, I think it's fantastic. Like, here's my issue with it. I think that I, like a lot of people right now, are highly attuned to sensitivities around race and yeah. identity and tribalism, right? And so when I hear something like us, I go, okay, well, am I the other in this situation? And the thing I love about your show is that you're highlighting people from disadvantaged backgrounds who did it, who worked their ass off and mm -hmm. achieved their dreams. And I want more people to believe that as opposed to yeah. having other people in the racial debate who are saying the system doesn't want you. The system is against you. You can't be for capitalism without being against black people. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, that's that's more defeating to young black people in, in an attempt to achieve economic autonomy than it is helping them. And so that's why that kind of caught me. That language caught me. I think there's there's room for debate around whether or not the workforce is looking to include or exclude women or people of color, you know? But mm. the fact of the matter is, I think, just like about everyone highlighted in my show, anyone who's made anything of themselves, I don't think you can take – you have to discount reality. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if something's for you or not for you. It doesn't matter if something's made for you or not made for you. It doesn't matter if – someone wants you there or doesn't want you. I've never walked into a room and felt like someone didn't want me there. So therefore I'm not going to be there. If I'm supposed mm. to be there, I'm supposed to be there. If you don't want me there, that's your problem, you know? Right. Um, so there's, there's a level of, I just want people to realize that you have autonomy, man. You know, you're in charge, you're in control of your life, whatever the circumstances are, man, I'll never settle for letting someone else dictate what I should be doing, where I should be. I did that for a lot of my life. I let a teacher in high school tell me that I should be a trash truck driver or, or work at Taco Bell, you know? By the way, 
being a sanitation worker, fantastic job. <laughs> but <laughs> I understood the sentiment, <laughs> you know. Was that the parent of the kid who asked you if you were poor? No, no, that was my that was my Spanish teacher in, in my freshman year. You know, for a long time, I, I, I let and I allowed people to sort of dictate my life for me. And, yeah. and, you know, you really have to write your own book, man. You really can't accept other people's judgment of you and your abilities. That said, we're all in this together, man. We're all, mm-hmm. We are all in this together. So us is everyone. If you like underdog stories, then this is for you. You're in part of that us. There's no other. There really is no other. I'll vouch for it. I like the stories. The people are all compelling. They're all inspiring. They're upbeat, happy people for the most part, which probably has something to do with how they've gotten where they've gotten. One thing too, that's interesting, and and it goes back to this idea that, you know, there used to be more programs. Like again, Susie Orman at 30, she'd been a waitress for a a decade, walks into a Merrill Lynch. She got, um, I forget how many hundreds of thousands of dollars people fundraised for her while she's working at a local cafe in Berkeley for her to be able to start her own company. She entrusted that money to Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch lost all of that money that her customers mm. <laughs> raised for her. And so she went in there basically angry. She did file a lawsuit, but she also walked out of there with a job, you know, because, <laughs> and, and that's because they needed women. Merrill Lynch needed. So I think over the last 30 years, the political debate has been contentious and it's muddied the waters. I think at the end of the day, if you look at everyone needs help, and I think we need to sort of step away from sort of political ideologies and assess how can we help others, whether that's through private companies and through private money or whether that's through the government. What is the appropriate way to address the feeling of hopelessness that many Americans feel? You know, and I think we have to look at addressing that. Do you believe in the American dream? I don't know if I believe in the American dream, but I believe in Americans, and I believe in America, and I believe that we're a flawed country, but I believe that the level of diversity we have here is unparalleled, and it's one of the most beautiful things about our country, you know? And, you know, it's it's a difficult question. We're at a time when it feels like regardless of gender or color that the American dream is, is is sort of slipping away. It's harder and harder to become middle class, upper middle class. I believe the American dream is still alive somewhere, whether it's healthy. I don't know. What would your 14-year-old self, that kid that was adrift, think about the man and the professional that you've become? I think 14-year-old me would be shocked. <laughs> completely <laughs> completely shocked yeah there's no way and by the way 33 year old me is shocked that people allow me to pay bills and have kids and go to i mean i i, I can't believe that uh i'm a fully functioning adult you know in charge of other people <laughs> in charge of uh, of things it's just it blows my mind yeah it blows my mind but yeah 14 year old me would be shocked completely completely how do you define success i think success is being able to provide for yourself and your loved ones while also feeling a sense of accomplishment. I think feeling that sense of accomplishment is important. That sense of accomplishment could come from the job you do. It could come from just the fact that you're able to take care of your kids. If that, you know, it's like whatever you sort of value, I feel like if you are 
if you're accomplishing that, if you can feel that sense of accomplishment, that you can feel that sense of pride in yourself, I think that's success, you know? Anything above that, that's gravy, you know? If, if you can have an unlimited discretionary income, beautiful, you know? But yeah. I, I think at, at the base level, if you, can have a, if you can feel pride in your accomplishments and you can take care of yourself and your family, you've won. Last question, do you feel rich? No, <laughs> I feel, no, I don't. I feel successful, uh, but I don't feel rich. And I'm not going to give you any of that corny, richest spirit stuff. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. What's next with the podcast, Justin? You got season one in the can or is season two going to happen? S- season one's in the can. We have other episodes taped for season two already and uh, no no solid plans on that yet. I have others I want to get in, other people I still want to talk to. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping a season two will be coming soon. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me. The podcast is started from the bottom and also broken record with Rick Rubin. If you're a music fan, you cannot help but love that show. And if you like great stories of uh, underdogs who became successful, check out Started from the Bottom with my guest, Justin Richmond. Hey, where can people find out more about you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at It's Jay Richmond. Uh, I'm also on Blue Sky Social, if you, if, if, if for anyone who's on that now, uh, Jack's new social platform. I'm still waiting Richmond. for my invitation. I'm still waiting for my invitation. Come on, Somehow Jack. I managed to get one, so you can find me there if you're there. And yeah, and you can find me uh, over at pushkin.fm and, and all the work we do at, at Pushkin Industries. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Justin. Appreciate you, Paul.